depriving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgressions. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. God, I pray that you would rejoice our hearts by your precepts. God, and I pray um, that you would help us to discern our errors and keep us back from presumptuous sins. God, free us from the dominion that they might have over us currently. God, and we pray that you would be pleased um, by the things I say and the things that we think during this time. Thank you for your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, It's good to be with you again this morning. If you would please open your Bible to Titus chapter 1. I'll be starting a series today in Titus. Plan to preach through the whole book incrementally uh, whenever it's helpful to the church uh, for me to preach. Um, So there'll be three main sections or main points. I'm going to do something somewhat try to do something somewhat uh, unprecedented. I'm going to try and preach through an entire chapter of the Bible. Um, uh, part of this is, is on, on purpose as a contrast to uh, the way Dan is moving slowly through John, which is good and helpful. It really is. But we need, we need to read the Bible both intensively and extensively. Um, and, and so it's good to be exposed to both. Um, so again, there, there will be three main sections or main points. Um, and to help sh- show how these three main points fit together, uh, I've, I've titled each section in a way where uh, they fit together in one sentence. So here that is, if you're taking notes. Uh, one, the message of eternal life is here. Two, so appoint elders. Three, who will silence false teachers. I'll give it to you again. Uh, One, the message of eternal life is here. It's verses one through four. Two, so appoint elders. Verses five through nine. And finally, three, who will silence false teachers. 10 to the end of the chapter. 
Uh, And it's my hope that by examining Titus chapter 1 under these headings, that we'll see, as your bulletin reads, that part of God's plan of salvation is to gather and order His people under qualified leaders. Look at verse 1 with me. The message of eternal life is here. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. So Paul identifies himself generally as God's servant and then more specifically as an apostle of Christ. As a servant, Paul is employed by another to obediently do his will. And as an apostle, Paul is a member of a small group of authorized representatives of Jesus. Um, They were specially commissioned to bear witness to the risen Christ, which they all saw personally, all of the apostles, and also to bear witness to what God accomplished in and through Christ. And so, so apostles were sent by Christ to speak on Christ's behalf with the authority of Christ to Christ's people. And in this way, the apostles, this is important, the apostles laid a foundation that the church would be built up on top of by their authoritative witness to Christ and what God accomplished through him. Uh, So what specifically was God's purpose for employing Paul and Christ's aim in sending him? Uh, Apostle uh, comes from the verb to send. Uh, What what was the specific aim? Look at the rest of verse 1. Is for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. So the target uh, that God has in mind for Paul's ministry, according to this verse, is the faith and knowledge of his elect ones. Now, uh, elect could also be translated chosen. So the, the chosen ones of God. Uh, and in this verse, no doubt, that designation refers to the church. The people whom, as we've been learning uh, from Pastor Dan, as he's walking through John 17, um, the people whom the Father gave to the Son, and therefore they come to Jesus and they keep His Word. How does God bring these chosen ones to Himself? And we're told here, right? By seeking to bring about faith and knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. He will bring His chosen ones to Himself by using other ones of His chosen ones, like Paul, to speak the word to them and thereby move them from a state of ignorance of the truth or willful rejection of the truth to a state of knowledge of it. And not just knowing it, but gladly accepting it and embracing it in faith as the truth that saves them. God enabling them to want to believe and commit themselves to the gospel. Uh, so, so even in this first verse, how God is using Paul how Paul understands his ministry, is a window into how God will work out his eternal plans of election. How does that actually play itself out in time? Well, it goes like this. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. But how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? Now, how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. It's Romans 10. 
So Paul understands his purpose in light of this grand purpose of God's election. Uh, Paul is sent to preach so that people will hear, so that God's elect ones will believe the faith of God's elect, so that they will call on the Lord. And again, everyone, everyone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So uh, according to this verse, Paul's mission centers on faith and knowledge. Now, having faith certainly means more than having knowledge. Remember, James 2 tells us that uh, demons actually have good theology. They know that God is one. So faith is more than knowledge. But faith can never be less than knowledge of the truth. Uh, recall Romans 10 that I read earlier. How will, how will one believe on one that they have never heard of? Knowledge tells faith what to aim at. And additionally, the end of verse 1 tells us that the truth accords with godliness. This, this is an extremely important biblical principle. And this will be extremely important to understanding Titus, chapter 1 and the other chapters. Truth and godliness go together. Uh, So if someone has committed himself in faith to the truth, they will begin to grow in a godly direction. Um, If godliness is lacking, there's a truth problem. Either a failure to understand the truth rightly, possibly willfully, or a failure to appropriate the truth in faith by believing it and embracing it and building your life on the fulfillment of that word. The truth always accords with godliness. And as we'll see later in Titus, then godliness in turn adorns the truth. Uh, which, which means godliness shows that the truth is glorious and wonderful and beautiful and even uh, demonstrates the truthfulness of the truth. Truth accords with godliness. Godliness adorns the truth. Moving back to the flow of the letter, what specifically is the focus of this truth that Paul strives to make God's people know and trust? It's the hope of eternal life. Look at verse 2 with me. In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Literally, promised before times eternal. So, uh, before times eternal, God resolved to give eternal life to a people He would save. The promise of God stretches from eternity past to the origin of the promise into eternity future, the goal of the promise. Uh, I've heard it said many times uh, that people want to be part of something bigger than themselves. Nothing is bigger than this. The saving promises of God are the size of eternity. That God would have a people for himself, for his own possession, forever. The certainty of this promise, it will come to fruition. God will give eternal life to a people that he wins for himself. It's underscored by a couple of things in this verse. One, 
the eternality of God. Because before times eternal, when God uh, resolved to, to make this promise of eternal life, before times eternal, there was only God, right? Uh, he alone is eternal, so He alone is independent and self-sufficient, and everything else is dependent on Him. This promise happened before times eternal. There were no other beings making competing promises. There were no complicating variables. There was just God. God's promise cannot fail. There's no other option. The certainty of this promise is also underscored by God's character. Who is the God who made this promise in eternity past? God who never lies. Literally, the the unlying God or the not lying God. This is who God is. So because God's promises can't fail and God cannot lie, we may confidently place our hope in this promised eternal life. And we have the opportunity to hope in this promise of eternal life because the eternal purposes of God have been set into motion already. They've broken into history. Look at verse 3 with me. And at the proper time, manifested. Wow. I think this is uh, incredible. Before times eternal promised, at the proper time, manifested. Doesn't that feel epic to you? It, sh- it should. Um. I struggled for, for a fair amount of time uh, while preparing this to try and communicate uh, how amazing that really is. The manifestation in time of God's eternal promise for eternal life. Um, I can't express how colossally significant and wonderful that is. But how precisely was and is this manifest in time, at the appointed time. Read verse 3 again with me. And at the proper time manifested in His Word through preaching, with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. So the eternal promise of God for eternal life has broken into history at the appointed hour, and it has come in the form of a word to be preached, of a message to be proclaimed. And God is wielding this message in history to accomplish His eternal purposes to save. And He is entrusted, as the second part of verse 3 says, He has entrusted this message to people who are faithful to preach it or share it. Um, remember Romans 10, again, that we read earlier. People preach the word, others hear, they believe, they call on the name of the Lord, they're saved. But note that that ended, that progression, ended with how are they to preach unless they are sent? Paul said, I've been entrusted with this message, this manifestation of God's promise for eternal life by the command of God our Savior. He is sent. It's here. The message of eternal life is here. 
How do God's elect respond? Like we read in verse 1, they come to have knowledge of it. They put their faith in it. And then they live in sure hope of what it promises. Um, Do you realize how significant this is, what we're doing together right now? What we're doing right now stands downstream of this. It's the same stream. What we do every Sunday, what you do when you share the word at home with your family, when you speak uh, the word, the message of eternal life to each other in, in all manner of differing contexts. When you do that, you're, you're as one commentator said, you're, you're planting a seed that fell from a tree that God planted in eternity past. The point of that is the ministry of the word communicating this message has roots in God's eternal purposes to save. What is happening now as we consider together God's promise to save a people for himself, this is part of the manifestation in time of God's eternal promise to give eternal life. What is this that we're taking part in? Praise God, this is glorious. Here's another important biblical principle. God uses his word to create and sustain his people. It has always been so. Just like the word of God created and sustains all of creation, so too God's word has begun to create and sustain uh, the leading edge of the new creation, which is you, the people he has redeemed in Christ. So as an apostle, uh, I'm, not, I'm pointing to myself, but I'm not an apostle. Um, as an apostle, Paul knows that this saving message of God has been entrusted to him in a unique and authoritative way. Uh, but Paul also knows that this saving message will and must outlast him and his own ministry. And so as God entrusted it to Paul... Paul knows he must entrust it to others. Look at verse 4. It says, To Titus, my true child in a common faith. Um, The designation of Titus as a true child in a common faith highlights Titus' participation in this ministry of the word that God is using to save his people. Uh, So when Paul's writing this, he knows his time in ministry won't last forever. In large part, the, the so-called pastoral epistles, which is Titus together with First and Second Timothy. There's a lot of overlap uh, between what those three letters talk about. Um, but, but those were some of the last letters that Paul wrote. So he realizes the sun is setting on uh, his own ministry and on the time of apostles generally. And so these pastoral epistles, of which Titus is one, contain instructions for how the mantle should be passed to subsequent generations of the church after the apostles are gone. Um, I think I've said this from the pulpit before, but I'll say it again. Historically, the church has affirmed rightly uh, that the church is, and, and they use this adjective, apostolic. The church is apostolic. And what that means is just that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles. 
like Ephesians 2.20 says. Their testimony is what the church, um, is what the, Jesus builds his church up from. This is the design of the architect of the church, God himself. So how will this uh, manifest in history, eternal promise of God, continue to be held forth for God's people, even after there are no more apostles? How will his word continue to create and sustain a new people for God, to save? How will it continue to accomplish the faith of the elect, their knowledge of the truth, their hope of eternal life? Well, this is part of what Paul is calling on Titus to assist in doing. And so he tells Titus, you're my true child. We have a common faith. Uh, You're running with the same baton that I've been carrying, although not exactly in the same way, uh, because I, Paul, and am am apostle. So the apostles uh, lay the foundation. Subsequent generations guard that deposit of truth, that foundation already laid. Titus, you help with what's coming next, with what will safeguard and perpetuate this message God uses to save. And finally, uh, at least the finale of the introduction, Paul says, as was his custom, as his, <laughs> his custom, this uh, grace and peace benediction for Titus. The end of verse 4, grace and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Savior. So by offering this prayer wish for his co-worker, Paul acknowledges that the work of God can only be accomplished by the work of God. Titus will need grace and peace. Um, so if we step back, before we move away from the introduction, what's the common thread that's running through these four verses? I think clearly God's plan for salvation is in, through, in view. Verse 1 uh, talks about the people God has chosen to save, Verse 2, God's promise of salvation made in eternity. Verse 3, the revelation of God's salvation in history. The end of verse 3, God is referred to as our Savior. The end of verse 4, Christ Jesus is referred to as our Savior. How is God saving a people? Well, part of that plan is to keep people faithful to Him until the very end until they actually enter into eternal life as promised in its consummate form. And how God will do that, in part, is the subject of our next verses, which brings us to our next main point. The message of eternal life is here, section 2, so appoint elders. Verse 5, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. Uh, The root word left or remain appears twice in this part of the verse. So I left you because there are some things left to do. I made you remain in Crete because there are some things remaining to be done. And specifically, there are some things that need to be put in order, need to be placed rightly, need to be said in straight fashion. Uh, Paul is, is asking Titus to help protect the fruit of his missionary work in Crete. These relatively new disciples of Jesus... He says, I'm leaving you there to make sure they're gathered according to a specific order. Now, this is important to Paul. Paul, uh, if you've read his letters, you'll know Paul doesn't particularly like being away from his 
co-workers, from his other partners in ministry. Paul doesn't like to be away from the churches that he loved and, and helped to plant. Um, one of my favorite examples of this in 1 Thessalonians, you don't need to turn there. Yeah, he's so concerned about the, the state of the church in Thessalonica that he sends Timothy, another one of his co-workers, um, and, and this verse kind of captures how hard it was for him to decide to, to be parted with his co-worker for the sake of the church. He says, therefore, when we could bear it no longer, not knowing how you're doing, church in Thessalonica, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind in Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith. So this is a big deal to Paul, to leave Titus in Crete, to finish setting things in order there. Now, uh, do you realize what Paul is calling for in this verse? And the title of the sermon tips you off. He's calling for organized religion. A few phrases will attract the ire of the general secular populace, especially in academia, more than those two words, organized religion. Um, some of you are familiar with this thing that exists on the internet called Google, and uh, uh, it's like a floating encyclopedia, and what, what you can do is you type in what you're going to search for, and it will give suggestions for what you're trying to say. It will auto-complete um, what, what they think you might be looking for. So it's interesting to do that to kind of get a pulse on what people are saying, what people are thinking. The auto-completes based on what the majority of people are searching for related to what you're typing in. Okay? Uh, so, so just to see, I put in to Google, organized religion is, and, and the four results it gave me, uh, su suggested, trying to be helpful to me, were organized religion is bad, uh, organized religion is uh, manure, is a, a different word, um, organized religion is a sham, organized religion is the root of all evil. That's the spirit of the age. I'm spiritual, but not religious. I shun organized religion. I love Jesus, but not the church. God, yes. Institutions, no. Religion is good when it stays personal. It's just when it becomes public and organized that we start to have problems. Um, so to respond mildly, that is not a biblical viewpoint. God's elect people, according to the New Testament, should be gathered into visible dare I say it, institutions with structure, with order, with, as we're about to see, recognized leaders that meet a certain set of qualifications. Um, perhaps you've heard some Christian groups uh, cast aside order under the banner of where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So, in addition to needing to understand and use that verse correctly, we also need to remember this principle that we learned from Titus, from this verse, that where the gospel of the Lord is, there is order. Because where there is not proper order, the gospel eventually won't be there either. 
This is God's word. This is God's idea for how his message of eternal life will be preserved and proclaimed and how his people will continue to be created and sustained by it. Organized religion, considered abstractly, is not problematic. It is good. It is necessary. It is commanded by God. Titus set to order the churches in Crete. Now, can we affirm, along with the scoffers, uh, that there have been horrendous abominations carried out in the name of, through the structures of, organized religions? Yes. Yes. But the problem is not organized religion per se. The problem is false religion. Or, at times, true religion, organized wrongly, not in accordance with God's design. And in this chapter of Titus, we learn that one primary way, not the only way, but one primary way in which God desires his people to be set in order is under qualified leadership overseeing local churches. Look at the rest of verse 5 with me. And appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Um, so, so frequently those who um, scorn the idea of organized religion think it's a way for the few to dominate and manipulate the many. But true religion, rightly organized, is just the opposite. It's a way for the few to serve and protect the many. And these few, according to the New Testament, are elders or shepherds or pastors or overseers. In the New Testament, all of these words are used generally to refer from different angles to the same office. Um, So what structure will be built on top of the foundation of the apostles' witness? one that will allow the church to continue to preserve and proclaim the gospel. Here it is. Appoint elders in churches. Uh, This was Paul's custom. In Acts 14, uh, after Paul is returning from one of his missionary journeys, he goes back to visit all of the places where he did missionary work. Um, I'm starting in 21, if you want to look at this later. 1421 says, when they, Paul and his associates, had preached the gospel to that city, Derby, and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. Why did they return? Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, With prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Uh, Now notice, Paul didn't only go back to the converts he had made in these cities and continue to disciple them and pray for them and then commit them to the Lord. No, he appointed elders for them in every church. And then he committed them to the Lord. Uh, Why not just commit them to the Lord and trust God to grow and keep and protect these people? Why enlist elders and then commit them to God? Is Paul hedging his bets, so to say? Like, well, I'll commit you to the Lord, but uh, just in case that doesn't work, I'll also put some guys in leadership um, to keep this, keep this thing going. No, of course not. Part of committing people to the Lord is committing them to the Lord's design for keeping them which is the local church, which submits to qualified leadership. 
Paul knew God's people were to be gathered and organized into local churches. That's an indispensable part of God's plan to keep his people by his word until they inherit the complete fulfillment of the promise of eternal life. Um, There's this ministry that I follow. Some of you maybe have heard of it. It's called Nine Marks. And one of their mottos is uh, something to the effect of working for the health of local churches is doing great commission work. Um, A lot of times we look at the great commission and rightly we say, uh, it doesn't say just make converts. It says make disciples. Don't just evangelize people. Also teach them to obey all I've commanded. Like Paul did in Acts 14, right? He went back and he strengthened the disciples he had previously made. But to fulfill the great commission, viewed especially from a broader kind of whole New Testament lens, especially as seen in the ministry of Paul, that includes the local church. So we can affirm the mantra of not just converts, but disciples, but we shouldn't aim to make freestanding disciples. Make local churches, strengthen local churches, bring people into local churches under the oversight of qualified elders. That's God's way. That is the great commission in fullest flower. I hope, I hope you do, but because it's so important, I'll ask again. Do you see how this verse fits in with the introduction? Verses 1 through 4. Um, perhaps someone would be tempted to think. I have these conversations with myself, and I put them on paper. <clears throat> um, my, how this sermon has fallen. We started well enough. <laughs> All right, we started well enough by talking about God's eternal promise for eternal life, and now we're talking about leadership structures? How do you transition from talking about something so majestic and wonderful and unsearchably great as God's eternal purposes for his elect, and then start talking about how to organize an institution? Uh, how do we nosedive from such exalted thoughts to a matter of bureaucracy? To which I answer myself, you read the letter of Titus, verse by verse. Uh, according to God's design, the message of eternal life, promised in eternity past, manifest in history now, is to be protected and propagated in part by elders overseeing local churches. Uh, Commenting on the introduction, John Stott said this, The worldwide preaching of the gospel throughout the historical process is the bridge which spans the two eternities of past promise and future fulfillment. And I would like to add to that line of thought that appointing qualified elders in local churches is an indispensable part of that bridge. Um, So elders... Do you recognize the eternal significance associated with your office? Non-elders, do you recognize the eternal benefits associated with being under good elders? I praise God for the elders here. Uh, I'm not one of them, so I'm not tooting my own horn to say that. Some of you felt awkward because you thought it was an elder. I'm not. <laughs> I praise God for the elders here. This is part of God's gracious plan 
for his people's eternal good. So who can be considered for such an office? Uh, what are the things Paul wants Titus to be looking for in the many appoints as elders? Verses 6 through 9 list the requisite qualifications. Uh, now before we begin looking at these, a um, couple of introductory remarks. One, scrolling through the Calvary Bible Church archives, uh, which is a real treat. I've <laughs> seen that uh, Pastor Dan has, has preached more than once on these qualifications from Titus. Uh, so I'm not going necessarily to provide a slow, detailed examination of the minutia of all of these credentials. That is a worthy endeavor. I commend to you Pastor Dan's previous messages on these next four verses. Uh, it's, it's worth listening to. But as a way to, to complement that objective already achieved, uh, my primary aim, again, is to, to show how this fits more broadly in, into the message of Titus. Hence the ambition to get through chapter 1. Uh, two, other thing I want to say by way of introduction to this. Uh, these qualifications should be something that everyone strives for. You can't say to yourself, I do not aspire to be an elder. I know I don't have the gift of teaching, so I can't be an elder. So I can tune out now. No, no, no. You don't get off that easy. First of all, you are responsible. All of you are responsible for recognizing affirming, and submitting yourself under qualified leadership. Conversely, you are responsible for recognizing, exposing, and either uh, removing or running away from unqualified leadership. You need to know these things. Also, elders are supposed to be examples for everyone. 1 Peter 5, 1 Timothy 4, say this. So, if the men who embody these traits are formally held up as your example, then that means you need to strive to embody these traits. You with me? Uh, D.A. Carson said something like, I got this from a he said, he said type of source, so I can't quote it exactly. But D.A. Carson said, the only thing notable about the list of qualifications for elders is that they really aren't that notable. They're all things that are uh, commanded for all Christians, other points in the Bible, uh, except for the one able to teach. So for at least these reasons, these, this is necessary for the close attention of all of us. Let's look at them quickly together. Uh, there are three main categories of credentials. A man's home, a man's character, a man's doctrine. A man's home, a man's character, a man's doctrine. And those first two categories, home and character, are both introduced and summed up by one and the same adjective, which is translated in the ESV as above reproach. Verse 6 says, if anyone is above reproach, and then it talks about his home in the rest of the verse. Verse 7, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach, and then talks about his character in the next two verses. So you can think of this quality as something of a heading that stands over all the rest. It's the capstone qualification. What does it mean? Reproach means a blame or criticism in this context, especially for some kind of moral deficiency. So to be above reproach is to live in such a way that you are free from the charge or accusation of evil. 
your reputation is such that if someone throws a charge of evil at you, it doesn't stick. You have an established, as I said, reputation that is not subject to significant accusations of wrongdoing. Uh, some versions translate this word blameless, but you, th- you shouldn't think of blameless in the sense of uh, perfection. No one would be qualified. Blameless uh, here is understood in the sense of living in a way that you don't attract the blame of moral failure from others. So notice, this, uh, this is a step above avoiding evil. Living above reproach means avoiding the appearance of evil. You live in a way to seek to avoid the charge or accusation of evil from others. You say, that's other people's problems. They can't judge me. Uh, they w- <laughs> and the judgments they make about you because you bear Christ's name, especially elders, the publicity of their office, um, is, is the judgments that they will attach to their understanding of the gospel as well. People's judgments about you are your business. Uh, note carefully what I'm not saying, though. I'm not saying you seek to avoid just the appearance of evil instead of actually avoiding evil, right? That's the clean the outside of the cup only hypocritical religion of the Pharisees. Seek to avoid the appearance of evil in addition to seeking to avoid actual evil. Um, if you'll permit me, if I, if I can digress for a little bit, uh, this virtue has really fallen by the wayside today. The buzzwords of the day are, um, at least in my, my generation, um, I went to a big college, so I was around people my age, um, a lot of different Christian circles, and I hear authenticity, vulnerability, being real, uh, in, as a response to the charge, the church is full of hypocrites. And too often, what people mean by these buzzwords, be authentic, be real, is that they just wear their sin on their sleeve, almost as a badge of honor to show that they're not hypocrites. Now, I understand some people really are hypocrites. They try to look holy even though they're not trying to be holy. But the solution to this is not, uh, I will stop trying to look holy. The answer is to start trying to be holy. As if it is a virtue to decide, I will stop pursuing sin secretly Instead, I will pursue sin openly. No, the virtue is I will not pursue sin secretly anymore. I will repent. Uh, To build on the metaphor of Jesus that I referenced earlier, uh, remember like hypocrisy is like cleaning the outside of the cup only and letting the inside remain dirty. Uh, I ran into too many Christian circles um, who fight against that hypocrisy by deciding just to let both the inside and the outside of the cup be dirty. And, and that's true, that they avoid the charge of hypocrisy. But neither is that Christianity. The goal is to appear righteous because you actually are living righteously. Elders must live a conspicuously righteous life. I'm not saying anyone should put on airs. Jesus is emphatic about this. Do not practice your righteousness 
in order to be seen by others. Matthew 6, 1. That's not what I'm saying. Rather, I'm saying that, that you seek not to do anything that could be judged as unrighteous if seen by others. Seek to live in a way that commends the truthfulness and power of the gospel to onlookers. Onlookers. So the first and primary context that reveals a man's qualification for the office of elder is the home, is the above reproach with, with respect to the home. Uh, not his living quarters, but his marriage and his family. Look at verse 6. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, I think implied, you fill in, then let him be appointed. <clears throat> uh, literally, the husband of one wife there could be translated a man of one woman. He has an established reputation, a clear history of being singularly devoted to his wife and no other. His children are believers. This could also be translated, and I think should, his children are faithful. I think that's a better way to take it. Uh, no man can control his children's conversion. And, and every time a man had another baby, he would be disqualified all over again because he has an, another child who's not a believer. Um, in, in 1 Timothy 3, the qualification is, is stated more generally. He manages his household well, keeping his children in submission with all dignity. I, I think his children are faithful is a, a better way to take this. Also concerning his children, they are not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Uh, that first word, debauchery, indicates flagrant, unrestrained pursuit of sin. I think the prodigal son, giving oneself wholesale over to the passions of the flesh. The second word, insubordination, represents the other side of that same coin, a settled unwillingness to submit to authority. And this particularly refers to a man's children while they are children, while they are under the authority of the man in his home. Uh, the word that's used is translated, um, like in, in the epistle of 1 John, it's translated little children most of the time. Uh, so the less direct authority the man has over the child as the child matures and grows into adulthood, uh, this qualification becomes proportionately less applicable. Of course, there's wisdom here of how to apply this. Uh, do, we, do we have an elder here who has children who are not in some degree insubordinate? Your children? No? Okay. <clears throat> Sorry, guys. So it takes wisdom to apply these things, but generally, are, are his children submissive and, f and faithful to a certain degree? Um, so how do you go about trying to decide? Is someone actually living above reproach? Start by looking at his relationships with his children at home and his wife. Again, the prime, this is key, the primary testing ground. The primary testing ground for eldership is the home, and that should make perfect sense. Uh, because the home is the place where the man has spiritual leadership. So if you want to know if someone is qualified to lead spiritually, look at where he is supposed to be doing it already. 1 Timothy 3, 5, another section that talks about the qualifications for elder, uh, says if someone does not know how to manage his own household, 
how will he care for God's church? Along these same lines in verse 7 here of Titus 1, it begins by calling an overseer God's steward. And the word translating steward, translated steward, indicates one who manages household affairs. The word household is, is in the word translated steward. So before you sign someone up to manage the affairs of God's household, uh, look to see how he's managing the affairs of his own. Um, does this mean that an elder, someone must have a wife and children to be considered for eldership? Uh, no. If you, if you have a view of qualifications for eldership that excludes Jesus, then your view is wrong, okay? Uh, if, if he doesn't have a wife and, and children to see how is he exercising spiritual leadership, then find some other context where he's exercised spiritual leadership over some period of time and see how that's going. Okay, verse 7 begins the second category of qualifications. Uh, after considering first a man's house, a man's character must be examined. Uh, verse 7, for an overseer, and it, it's interesting to note the interchange between qualifications for an elder, because an overseer, you see how they refer to the same office, um, an overseer is God's steward, household manager, must be above reproach, which we've talked about. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. So Paul lists five qualities here that must be absent for a man, absent from a man. Uh, not arrogant, not quick-tempered, not a drunkard, not violent, not greedy for shameful gain. And these correspond to five uh, common temptations for a man to experience. I got, I got this from John Stott. They corresponded the temptations to pride, temper, alcohol, power, and money. The elder cannot be mastered by a lust for any of these things. He must rather be, as the next verse will make explicit, self-controlled. Look at verse 8. But, so in contrast or correction to what must be absent, these qualities must be present. Uh, but he must be hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined. Literally, that word hospitable uh, is a compound word of love and stranger. Does he love and serve other Christians, even those he doesn't have an established relationship with already? Is he oriented toward others? Love what is good. Is he zealous for good works, as Paul puts it later in Titus? The last four qualities uh, positively affirm what was stated negatively in verse 7. Instead of being given over to those temptations, he's instead self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined. So after asking, is he able to be the manager of his own household? Ask, is he able to be the master of himself and exercise self-control? And finally, the man must hold fast to sound doctrine. Look at verse 9 with me. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So we must hold fast to sound doctrine and, and must know how to use it, so to say. He must, must be able and willing to both instruct and rebuke as the occasion calls for. Uh, this is the main duty associated with the office of elder. 
So in this way, elders actually do join Paul in the purpose of his ministry expressed earlier in the letter. They serve, they instruct, and rebuke for the sake of the faith of God's elect, for their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, for their hope in eternal life. This is the desired effect of instructing and rebuking. Faith, knowledge, hope, which produces godliness. And after uh, looking then at all of these qualifications as a whole, we see that elders should embody that, that biblical principle that I said was so important, that the truth accords with godliness. You should see that in the life of the elder. We have the truth being held fast to, and it accords with the godliness of his life. So an exemplary character, able to teach. Paul says, Titus, you find guys like this in every city and appoint them as elders. God's eternal promise to give eternal life to his elect people continues in part through this design for his church. Uh, Transitioning to our third and final point, which we'll cover quickly, verse 9 ends mentioning the need to rebuke those who contradict or speak against sound doctrine. And then verses 10 through 16 describe those who are doing that, who are speaking against sound doctrine, and then issues a call for them to be rebuked. Last and final point, the message of eternal life is here. So appoint elders, three, who will silence false teachers. Appoint elders, summary of verses 5 through 9. Why? Verse 10. For, because, there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party, and they must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. So that's the reason Paul left Titus and Crete to set things in order. Elders need to be established with some degree of urgency in Crete because there's no shortage of men who are not qualified, both in terms of character and doctrine, and they're all too ready to lead the church. Um, It's interesting, the first thing noted about these false teachers is that they're insubordinate. It's the same word used in verse 6, the qualified elders' children must not be insubordinate. One commentator uh, made this observation about that connection. The author's point is that an elder's ability to prevent rebellion and debauchery in his household held promise for success in dealing with instances of it in the church. Along these same lines, as we read in verse 11, tells us that these rebellious opponents were upsetting whole households. So verse 6 has made it clear the elder's house is to be free from such rebelliousness. Now is a good time to say, on that note, that there are numerous connections between verses 5 through 9, qualifications for elders, and verses 10 through 16. Uh, sets the elders and false teachers in direct contrast. We already said uh, children are not to be insubordinate of elders. False teachers, they themselves are insubordinate. The children must be faithful or believing in verse 6. Verse 15, the false teachers are not faithful or they're unbelieving. Verse 7, elders must not be greedy for shameful gain. Verse 11, the false teachers are greedy for shameful gain. Verse 8, the elder must love what is good. Verse 16, 
The false teacher is unfit for every good work. Verse 9, you must, elder must hold fast to the faithful word. Verse 14, they must devote themselves. They're uh, cognate verbs. They must devote themselves. I'm sorry. They do devote themselves to myths and commandments of men. And finally, a connection we've already talked about in verse 9. Elders must rebuke those who contradict sound doctrine. And in verse 13, these false teachers themselves need to be rebuked. You need qualified elders because there are a lot of unqualified men who are willing to influence the church. Uh, who are these false teachers? In verse 10, they're called uh, those of the circumcision party. We don't have a lot of information about them, but it seems based on uh, verses coming up that these false teachers are overly concerned with ritualistic purity, uh, with being ceremoniously clean with uh, external righteousness. It's really reminiscent of many of Jesus' interactions with the Pharisees. Uh, You forsake the commandments of God to pursue the traditions of men. You're wrong to think your hand-washing ceremonies and other purity rituals cleanse you from moral defilement. The problem is your heart is wicked. From the heart come uh, all manner of evil things. And these guys are doing real damage to the church in Crete. Remember, verse 11 says that uh, whole households are being upset. Uh, So how does Paul advocate Titus put an end to this? Verse 11, they must be silenced. Literally, um, uh, it's a a verb form of the word mouth with the preposition upon on it. So literally, to put something on their mouth. Uh, I hope it's obvious to you, Paul doesn't want Titus to literally chase these guys down and gag them or do something crazy like that. But silence them in the sense of uh, do not give them, remove from them any platform for influence in the church. Appoint qualified elders to crowd these guys out of positions of influence. And then those elders in those positions of influence should call these guys out for their false teaching and their ungodliness. One commentator says, uh, when false teachers increase, the most appropriate long-term strategy is to multiply the number of true teachers who are equipped to rebut and refute error. Uh, Verse 12, Paul points out these false teachers are not living above reproach. Rather, they're living in ways that uh, merit the reproach that their countrymen are are getting. Uh, Verse 12, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And uh, Paul adds uh, tersely in the next verse, this testimony is true. It's like, uh, yeah, I agree with that. Um, The people of Crete had developed a reputation uh, for idleness and especially for lying. There's a a Greek verb that developed, uh, kratidzo from Crete, that means to lie. Paul brings this up uh, not to dog a whole people group, but for the purpose of demonstrating these false teachers are not living set-apart lives that commend the truth of the gospel. So, uh, in distinction from in the elders, they embody the truth that the truth accords with godliness, and in these false teachers, their untruth accords with ungodliness. 
Verse 13 gives further instruction on how to respond to these false teachers. Uh, Their testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply. In in addition to silencing them by uh, taking the rug out from under them and their platform for influence, so also rebuke them. It says to rebuke them sharply or severely. False teaching, especially false teaching that's making inroads in the church, needs to be put down um, forcefully, quickly, severely. And amazingly enough, even though a sharp rebuke doesn't seem very gracious, the very reason Paul gives for issuing a sharp rebuke is grace, is grace. Look at the rest of verse 13. Rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. The goal for this rebuke is that they would repent and would would themselves hold fast to the faithful word as taught. To be sound in the faith, as as verse 13 put it, means they would need to uh, cut off their devotion to these other systems of instruction, which are explained in verse 14 and 15. Read them with me. Not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. Here's a correction to these myths and commands of men that Paul gives. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their minds and consciences are defiled. Again, these guys are making a big deal about purity and defilement. And they're putting the wrong emphasis on what makes a man pure and what makes a man defiled. It's not a ritual. It's not a ceremony. It's the heart. And no amount of um, rituals or ceremony or pursuing external righteousness can cleanse your heart and your mind from defilement. Um, Very similar to uh, errors that Jesus addressed in the Gospels. I I won't uh, read them. We don't have time, but I'll give you two to look at. Matthew 10. I'm sorry, Matthew 15, starting in verse 10, and Luke 11, 37 through 41. For those whose minds and consciences are defiled, whose heart is wicked, nothing is pure. Whatever is not done from faith, no matter how pious it looks, is sin, it's defilement. Can a bad tree produce good fruit? No. Purity is foundationally a matter of the heart. And whatever is done from a heart and mind and conscience that is truly clean by faith in the gospel is pure. Paul summarizes and culminates his description of the false teachers in verse 16. It says, They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So despite their busy religious activity, which appears to be piety and even appears to be ministry, these men do not know God, and their deeds prove it. So in conclusion, uh, there will be men like these first century false teachers in Crete that threaten the church until the Lord comes back. They must be silenced and rebuked And the threat of these teachers highlights the wisdom of God in his design to gather and order his people under qualified leadership. And this is part of the means by which he ensures his people keep holding fast to the true message of eternal life until, as as 1 Peter says, they obtain the outcome of their faith, 
the salvation of their souls. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would preserve us until we obtain the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. God, I thank you that we have eternal life now in Christ Jesus, but we also look forward to the day when we have it more fully. Thank you for your design in the local church. I pray you would be glorified in this local church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.